And with that, we'll get into uh, the message. So we are in Genesis chapter 3, kind of, today. Um, if you have your bookmarks, we'll be in Genesis 3 and Matthew chapter 1 primarily. Uh, we've, we've been in Genesis, and this is where we are going to launch from uh, today. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you for your uh, mercy towards us. We thank you for uh, your, your grace. Um, you are so good to us. We thank you that in the midst of, of the fall, as we've been in Genesis chapter 3, sort of looking at the fall of humanity and the grave situation that we are in, uh, that sin conta- contaminated human- humanity. And we each find ourselves uh, separated from you apart from Christ. And, and right here in the beginning pages of the Bible, we see that you delivered a promise uh, that you would send a, a, a redeemer, uh, that a plan was set in motion, and they looked forward uh, to the coming Messiah. We look back uh, to Jesus's uh, birth, uh, life, ultimate crucifixion, and then resurrection. And we thank you that in him we can find hope, we can find uh, security, we can find peace, and an ultimate joy uh, which is really navigating this life and the uncertainty of it and the difficulties, Lord, that there is just true peace uh, deep within us as we find ourselves anchored in Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask that you would uh, help us as we look at this uh, this, this theme of uh, the promise that you gave of this Messiah that would come. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has just fallen. We looked at this last week. The Lord becomes aware of what has happened. He talks to the man. He talks to the woman. And then he begins to address the serpent for what has happened. And in the midst of the curse that he gives to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, he delivers this, this promise And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for this very first presentation of the gospel, really, is what this is. We thank you that... Between the serpent and humanity, you have created a path for redemption. We thank you that ultimately in Christ, that Satan, that his head was crushed through the cross, and that through the cross we can find deliverance. We ask that you would help us today as we really seek to redeem Christmas for what it is or what, it, what we've kind of made of it, and we ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I don't know about you, like what you think about Christmas or the origins of Christmas or what do you know anything about it? Or are you just like me? You just kind of grew up in America and it's like, hey man, I like the sweets. I, I mean, I'm like looking at my boys and they're like, I mean, I can see the remnant of their mess here of candy canes. I've already like confiscated a bunch of candy. Uh, there's donuts coming. It's 
it's like there's the music and then there's like the, the you know the pre Super Bowl of Christmas Eve getting one gift and then there's the Super Bowl and then there's the crash and it's you know it's a blast. So I did some real research this week about uh, the top ten traditions of Christmas, and so my very first search on Google came up with these ten things. I, I can say that I like doing most of these. Um, number one, watch a movie. Did everybody watch a movie during Christmas? Yeah, yeah? okay. Uh, set up a Christmas tree. Good? Everybody's kind of nodding. Or a fake one. Uh, string home and yard decorations. This one I'm kind of like, eh, I live out in the middle of the country. Nobody can see my house. What's the point of like even doing it? It's like, it's like getting Halloween candy. Like, what's the point? Nobody's coming to my door, so why do I do this? Like, that one I'm a, that one I'm sort of a Scrooge on. Uh, hang mistletoe. I, ever since I moved to Valley Center, I learned that it's destructive. It's like, I think there's mistletoe on this tree if we still have it. It's like a weed that kills the tree. So I think it's like a city person thing about hanging mistletoe. It actually has to do with the god of fertility, that they think if you kiss under it, you'll get pregnant. So I don't think that's true. Um, uh, okay, let's see. Where are we on the list? I didn't number them. I should have numbered them. Uh, host or join a Christmas dinner. We're definitely going to do that. That's what I'm good with. Um, bake Christmas cookies and decorate and decorate gingerbread houses. That's definitely something we do. I don't know that I bake any Christmas cookies, but I definitely eat a whole bunch of Christmas cookies. Um, we exchange gifts. That's like number one, in my opinion. Uh, we send Christmas Day cards. That's another one I don't do. I receive them, and it's kind of like that's definitely part of a tradition. Hide an elf on the shelf. How many people do that one? There's a couple of hands go up, like elf on the shelf. I think this is a new thing. You guys do gnome on the shelf, right? Or gnome in the home, sorry. Uh, uh, and then listen to Christmas carols. That one, like I, I super like listening to Christmas carols. The, the, che- the cheesier, the better. One of my all-time fam- fav- favorite ones is Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. Um, that's like, I, you know, I just love it. Um, Sorry, not to offend any grandmas, but it's just like a super good one. Uh, so I don't think that any of these things are bad. Like, I super enjoy all of these things. Just as we get into this, I just want to point out I'm wearing a super obnoxious shirt. I, like, love Christmas. Just let that be in the background of your fi- uh, file. But the, the real question is, like, what, is how, what does Christmas have to do with the Bible? Like, what does Jesus and Christmas have to do with each other? And the, the short answer is they really don't have anything to do with each other. Spoiler alert. Like, I, I, I hate to say this to you guys. And I'm wearing a candy cane shirt. But the re, like, where does Christmas come from? So this is an answer that came off a, 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 like a resource of mine. Is that when Rome eventually instituted Christianity as a state religion in the 4th century, the Roman church converted Saturn, I want to say Saturnilla, that said it with authority, and Sol Invictus to a Christian holiday, the Feast of Nativity, in order to commemorate Jesus' birth, thus providing a spiritually positive alternative to the pagan celebration the sinful customs and debauchery associated with Saturnilla were, quote-unquote, cleaned up, 
and some of the customs were absorbed into the celebration of Christmas. Christians have, quote-unquote, redeemed December 15th and have celebrated it as the birth of Christ since the 4th century. So I'm not trying to bash Christmas. I love Christmas. Like, I enjoy Christmas. Trying to put Christmas in its right place and, like, like how did we get here is when you look at the history of, of how Christmas came, it is like the irony of like you go back to the fourth century, so we're like 300 years after the life of Christ, the Roman government under a dictator said, the new religion is Christianity. And everybody had to become a Christian. And then they said, well, we have these two other religions. We're going to convert these to the Christian re- religion that everybody has to celebrate. Sound good? Sounds good. This is the new thing. Great invention. I mean, like, we like, we love it. Like, but this is where it came from. It really has a pagan background. It's not, you're not going to find Christmas in the Bible. So just to sort of keep it in perspective. And so if Christianity was forced upon Rome and then Rome took these two pagan holidays and then converted it to to Christmas to sort of, uh, spiritualize it and to give it a thing. And now it's a great, it's a really a great marketing thing across around the world. And then Christianity, then we like, it's, we want to embrace it. And we, we kind of, as Americans, we were raised with it. Like none of us were around in the third century or fourth century. And, and so we've just kind of embraced Christianity to celebrate the birth of Christ and all of the other things that are like associated with it. And so in the midst of that, it's like super easy to like lump Jesus with a bunch of other non-biblical characters. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to spoil anything for Larry today. You know, I just don't want to. Um, is he even here? There he is. <laughs> <It's> like, <clears throat> and, and so he, Jesus kind of gets lumped in together with all of these other characters and so it's very easy to like say or to think Jesus actually isn't a historical character. He's just one of the other characters um, that are out there. In fact, I've often quoted from this book. Uh, so quoting is a like a loose par- like a loose uh, uh, quoting is a loose uh, description of what I actually do. Is what I. But I, I quote from this, this book by A.J. Jacobs, a super funny author, and he did this book, A Year of Living Biblically. And all of a sudden in my house this week, I see that Anna's like now reading this book. And I'm like, what, what are you doing with that book? She's like, well, you always reference it. It's like one of these books that you reference all the time. And so I figured I should read it. And I'm like, oh, Anna, don't like... Don't hold me accountable because some of the stories I've made up like may or may not actually be in that book that you're reading. And, and so I'm trying to do this like dance. I'm like, don't hold me accountable because like I might have merged other stories and like given it credit to this book. And so she's like, well, no, it's really like, so she's like telling me all the stories about the book and I'm going, oh yeah, I kind of remember that part. And, and so one of the things she said this week was the guy, like as he does his research um, to do this, he interviews a whole bunch of people. And one of the people that he interviews is the the president of the Atheist Club of New York City. And it turns out this guy became an atheist when he found out that uh, 
some of the characters he was presented as a child were not actually real figures. And so he thought everything religion-wise is all just a big hoax. And so I think for us as we enter Christmas and we enjoy Christmas, like, like, like our Christmas Eve tradition, like to end the night, is we watch Elf. Like we watch Elf. And so, like, we try to present things, like, with humor and fun and good memories, but also, like, trying to keep the reality of, like, what's real and what's not real, because we need wisdom to not, to not lump Jesus with these other characters. And so, today's really, like, part one of Christmas. Like, we're, we're gonna, we've been in Genesis 3. On Christmas Eve, we're going to do Christmas part two, where we continue the story of the birth of Jesus. And then next week, we'll be in Luke chapter two, sort of like immediately following the birth of Christ, because next Sunday is December 26, which is the day after Christmas. So we're, we're sort of in this, like the calendar's like an awkward, sort of like the spacing's a little awkward. And what, what, see, so we just kind of felt compelled that, like, let's continue the, the, the Christmas theme the day after Christmas. Um, and so if Christians have said, we're going to take this pagan holiday and we're going to redeem it for Christianity, and what we're going to identify or connect this holiday to is the birth of Christ, like, the question is, is like, why is the birth of Christ so significant? Because the birth of Christ is significant. And if we've redeemed it and to keep Jesus sort of in the, 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 the forefront of our thinking, why is this so significant? And I think that the first advent, which is Jesus' coming the first time, his first advent, is when he came into human form. As we look at Jesus' birth, we need to remember this isn't Jesus' coming into existence. Jesus existed in eternity past. As we read the beginning pages of of Genesis, God refers to himself in in the plural, let us make man in our image, so that Jesus was in existence always, and then he became man. He took flesh, as uh, Philippians chapter 2 says, that he, he took on the form of man and he became man. And his dual nature, as he lived his life, 100% man, 100% God, this isn't something that like in our finite brains we can fully fathom, but it's what the Bible reveals about Jesus. And so we celebrate his first advent because in his first advent, advent in his coming, so many of God's promises, like so many of these promises were fulfilled in a way that you just can't accidentally do. There was a mathematician that really cared about Bible prophecy. I should have written that down, the guy's name. And he was trying to show his students the, the, the mathematic probability of eight significant prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, um, the likelihood that, it, that a person could like pull one of them off, let alone eight of them off. And the numbers are too big for me to even like begin to like, I don't know. It's like a bunch of numbers. Like it's like a a zeros, like it's like a whole bunch of zeros. And then he put it into terms that I could understand. And he said, now imagine that you took a silver dollar and you placed a silver dollar side by side and you filled the whole state of Texas with one layer of silver dollars. And then you do that a second time. So that's a big number. Like I like 
ginormous, I think is a technical word for like amount of coins. And then he said, you take one of those silver dollars and you mark it with a Sharpie and you throw it out into Texas, like go up into the sky, drop it down. And he said, the odds of you doing fulfilling one of these prophecies would be able to go out there blindfolded and like to grab that one coin successfully. But then he says for Jesus, he says there's eight significant ones in the Old Testament. He said to do that eight times over. It's like it's like impossible. And that's really what prophecy is. It authenticates like when when somebody fulfills something, it, it like has to be God. And there's so much in the Old Testament of like these prophecies that were told concerning the birth of Christ and his coming that it's really hard to like piece together them all like in a 30 or 40 minute setting that we have here. Like how, how do we do that? And so I just want to start with the, the, the first one, like the first prophecy that we see in the Bible concerning Jesus. Um, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here we are in the darkest day of human history. We see the fall of man. We see that man is separated from God. And in the midst of the punishment, God delivers this wonderful little promise that something's going to happen to the serpent, the one that got them in this mess, that his head is going to be crushed. And in the process, that, that, that he will bruise him on the heel. So it's kind of like Jesus crushes him, his head, his skull in with his heel, and he kind of bruises his heel, but it's catastrophic to the head that's being crushed. Uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus refer to this as the first gospel back in the second century AD. So this is like the first hundred years following Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They looked back then at Genesis chapter three, and they said, this is the first appearance in the Bible uh, of the gospel. Luther on this verse said this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in all of the scriptures. That this is so fascinating that in the midst of these very pages, God lays out this plan. And so we see that through the seed of this woman that we would see this Messiah would come. Um, it's, it's, It's extremely important. As the Old Testament begins to unfold, God gives these like breadcrumbs of prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Um, really, it's like, it's so, diff- it's like, I mean, there are people who spend their lives studying this. The, the people who like cared about this more, more than any other people group is the nation of Israel. Like the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they cared significantly about this. And, and this is why I decided that today the the, the, the simplest string that I can follow through the Old Testament is really found in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and we're going to cover something that I know is our, like for those of you that have read through the Bible, uh, the thing that we love more than any other thing is genealogy, right? We just love it. Like I love it in the Bible reading plan because when I see genealogy, it's like, oh, this is like a free day. This is like two whole chapters. I can just, boop, I'm done with my reading. Well, what'd you read? I don't know. It's a bunch of names. I just kind of skipped along. But the, re- <laughs> I know I have people with me that do that. That's like, but the reality is like genealogy is like super important because this is how they're, they're documenting things. And so I told you to save your spot in Matthew chapter one. So Matthew of the gospels, each 
Each gospel has its own flavor, its own purpose. Matthew, his purpose is he is trying to convey to the Jewish people that Jesus indeed like fulfills all of the requirements to be the Messiah. And and you can't just do this accidentally. You can't pretend to be the Messiah. There, there are too many things, um, let alone in Jesus's life, but things that Jesus doesn't have control over, like how he's born, how he dies, these things that are out of his control that he fulfills, yet alone his life, he fulfills all of these things. It's overwhelming, like what he does. And so Matthew, when he begins his gospel, if you're there, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And he begins with the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right away, he's dealing with some prophecy, this, this string of prophecy. And what we see in the Old Testament, so we see the very first sort of promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are sort of known as like the prehistoric era of humanity. They are held together by themselves. Then in chapter 12, we're introduced to some characters. In chapter 12, really, it's, it begins the story of Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. Super significant guy. Then as we go from Abraham, we go to David, the second king of Israel, but really the first king in, in many respects. It's the king that God inst- installed. There was Saul before him who the people chose, and it was a big disaster of a mess. And then God chooses his guy uh, to be the king. And so some promises are delivered through these two men um, about the Messiah and what God would do. And so when Matthew begins and he says the record of genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, so he identifies Jesus, his human name, Messiah is, is uh, it could also be Christ. This is uh, who Jesus is the son of David, his humanity, the son of Abraham. So he goes from Jesus back to David, back to Abraham. So he's going to begin to follow the lineage through these guys, showing that Jesus has the proper genetic uh, credentials to be the Messiah. Like this is where he begins. Because if he doesn't have the genetic credentials to become the Messiah, then this, like the rest of what he did is there's no point in even having the conversation and if you were to back up, like in Genesis, my Bible, what I have that I've written in there is that I have Genesis 1, there's creation. Then you have the fall in Genesis 3. And at the fall, we have the promise. And then the next sort of step in, in the layout of Genesis is chapter 12. So the very next sort of like uh, chapter heading in the book, we're introduced to Abraham. And right there in chapter 12, there's this promise. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, I'm trying to figure out how much do I want to cover here. I have notes, but I have my mind, and my mind tends to overpower my notes. Because <laughs> it's like a sloppy mess. Like, how do we, like, piece this together? So if you have your Bibles opened up, um, we, we have in this genealogy, there's verse 1. It's sort of like a mini outline. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, going back to his like grandfather 14 times removed. So 14 generations or whatever, maybe it's 28. 
I'll let somebody else do the math. Um, and then from David, he goes back to Abraham. And then if you go down to verse 17, it says, So all the generations from David to Abra- from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So it's 28. So, so he's kind of like piecing together the Jewish history of all of these different categories. And in verse 2, verses 2 through verse 6, He's starting back at Abraham. So he's going to Genesis chapter 12. He's going to go through all of the, gene- the, the genetic re- records. This is before 23andMe. There's no spitting in the tube. This is all like they meticulously kept gener- like the generations of who was born of who and who was born and who and all of these families. They were kept in the temple. It was like public record. You could access this stuff. And he's saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so he goes through all of the different names. Now, why does he start with Abraham? Because Abraham is one of the very first promises that was given uh, concerning the Messiah and concerning the things that would happen. We know it as the Abrahamic covenant. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Continue to hold your spot in Matthew and go back to Genesis chapter 12. So in Genesis chapter 12, as you guys are turning there, I'll take a sip of water. So in Genesis chapter 12, enough time has elapsed from Genesis 3:15. Humanity knows that God is going to deliver a Messiah at this point. Something is coming that's going to help them to connect with God. They received the promise. They looked forward by faith to the promise. Everything in the Old Testament is by faith. Their relationship with God is by faith. As Paul writes Romans chapter 4, he references Abraham, the father of the faith, and he says, listen, every God recognized Abraham as righteous because of his faith, because he trusted God in what he said he would do. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, this is where the the important part lies for the subject matter at hand today. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this promise is given. The story continues to unfold, and in, and in Genesis chapter 15, the Abrahamic covenant, covenant is ratified. Things are going to be put in motion. So God like restates everything again, and Abraham's like now a pretty old man. He doesn't have any kids. His wife is barren. God's promise is like, how, like, how is all of this going to come, come to be when I'm childlike? Everything that you said has to come through me, and yet, humanly speaking, this is impossible. And so then God says, I understand your frustration. Let's go outside. Look up at the stars. Can you see all the stars up there? Yeah, there's a lot of them. And this is before there were lights and stuff. So it was like, I imagine it was a, 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 just an amazing, beautiful scene, like being out of the desert where there's no like lights of any kind to look up and go, wow. And God says, listen, through you, you're going to have that many descendants. He says, it's impossible. Tells his wife, his wife laughs, and he's like, ah, we got the name for your kid. It's going to be laughter. (laughs) 
And so then God puts them to sleep and God makes this covenant that where they, they, they find a hill, they put them together. Isaac or Abraham is like terrified because he recognized the conditions that are being, that God is asking. He can't fulfill this. And so then God says, get all the animals, splice them in half, let their blood flow to the center of the ravine. And then God puts Abraham to sleep. And then God walks through the blood. And we see these, this image of God going back and forth through the blood. This is how they would make a covenant in that day that you would do this in blood and you say, you kind of walk back and forth to the guy that you're making the deal or shake his hand or whatever. And as you're doing this, if I don't fulfill my part, may this be me. If you don't fulfill your part, may this be you. But God's doing this on his own. So the promises that he's making to Abraham are totally conditional on God and his own character and his own nature and everything that God, as God, God is doing all of this. And so this promise is made. And then the story unfolds. We're going to get there. We're in Genesis. So, this, so the story of Isaac comes, this, this child comes. And then God says, kill him. Huh? Like, this is my only son. This is like all of the promises are contingent on like this. And so then Abraham tells his son Isaac, hey, hey kid, we're going to go for a little hike. <laughs> and kid's going up the mountain going, I kind of see what's going on here. This is like a sacrifice, but I'm not seeing it. Like, <laughs> like all I'm seeing is me. Abraham's like this. And God, though, all of a sudden a lamb comes. And God, God says, hey, you trusted me. And so we see this like this next sort of like step of a picture of the coming Messiah. And so this is why Matthew starts here. Now, this, the story continues to un- unfold. Uh, go, if you find First Samuel, or Second Samuel, excuse me. So Second Samuel chapter seven, and kind of hold your place there. Maybe you've already done this. But as I go back to, to Matthew, Matthew begins, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From verse 2 to verse 6, I have Abraham and David highlighted, and then I have a line connecting these two individuals. There's a whole bunch of names in between. But it goes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so on, until we get down to Jesse, the father of David. Then we stop at David. This is another big indicator from verse 17. He lists out all of the categories. So we've gone down 14 generations to David. David comes on scene, the first king of Israel, not what the people thought he would be. And then in second. Samuel chapter 7, God delivers a promise to David. We know it as the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 12, chapter 7, verses 12 through 15, God says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now this is important. The throne of his kingdom forever. So this is different than an earthly king. Like an earthly king, they have a couple years. They, you know, some six months, some 40 years, however long they can kind of hold it together and they fall apart. But this, suddenly, this king from David, a king is going to come that's going to have a throne 
that's going to be forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart, depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so this Davidic covenant is given. There's like so much there that like, I'm sure that some questions kind of popped in. We like, I have to stay focused on this like thread of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. This is about like Christmas today. So we have in Abraham this promise that through this one person that there's going to come this individual from his line that's going to be a blessing to all families on the earth. Then, then as the story sort of unfolds, David comes on scene and God says, and also, there's going to be this individual that comes, that he's going to have this throne that's eternal forever, that he's going to be like a king that's, that's never been experienced before. And, and as you work your way through the Old Testament, there's like additional prophecies and things that are like, that come up alongside that you kind of piece together. Um, but these are huge items, especially for the Jewish people at that time. They're huge items for everybody, but the Jewish people are the people who God entrusted to like hold together all of these records and these accounts and these things so that they would know and they'd be able to authenticate. And as Matthew, kind of going back to Matthew, as he lays this out, so he goes from Abraham in verse 2 all the way to David in verse 6. Then David picks up the story in verse 6, David. Uh, David the king, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. You follow this all the way down to verse 11. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So then we get to, we get to the deportation. This is a huge point in Israel history. Israel had become a nation. Then in 586 BC and 722 BC, so 586 is the most recent because we're moving from the big number to the small number before we reset the clock and we start over with Jesus. So in 586 BC, the nation of Israel is fully taken into slavery. They've been taken captive by outside and they're decimated as, as a nation not to exist again for another 2,000 years. Like they're disseminated. That's Babylon. So we go to the very last king of of Israel, Jeconiah, who is an evil man, like a really, really bad guy. Then Israel's existence ceased. They go in to, to Babylon. Then after the deportation, verse 12, to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of, that's an interesting word, name and a whole bunch of interesting names, uh, all the way down to verse 16, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. So we, fought, we have all of this down. And what Matthew is starting in his gospel, when he's talking about the birth of Jesus, he says all of this stuff. And what he's saying about Jesus is he's making this legal case for Jesus's right to this position as Messiah. And he's basically saying, hey, guys, look at the records. Go to the temple. Research it yourself this is all public information you can see. This isn't a scam. This isn't something I'm trying to pull the wool over your I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Like Jesus fulfills everything to be the Messiah. And it's all there in the records. And then as I continue my gospel, I'm going to pull together all of the, the, the prophecy to show you how Jesus fulfilled it. Like 
Matthew contains so much Old Testament. And the reason Matthew contains so much Old Testament, like every little piece, Matthew says, and it's according to the word that this happened. He's piecing together all of this prophecy, confirming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This is huge. Okay, I'm like, wait, I'm like, where did we cover this? Cover this, we cover that. I'm kind of checking in my notes here. Um, I do want to point out, when we talk about Jeconiah, so we have a problem with Jeconiah. Like, we, we have a real problem with Jeconiah. Um, well, maybe, maybe I do. do you, we, we, you, we all do, like, <laughs> whether you know it or not. Jeconiah was the last king of Israel. Matthew's genealogy follows Joseph. So Joseph goes back, because, right, we get from Jeconiah in verse 11... Down to verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. You follow this record down, and there's a real problem. Uh, There's a real problem. Because in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, we read this. God is cursing Jeconiah. He was a super evil king. And God says, I'm done with you. I'm done with your family line. No more. And God says, for no man of his descendants will prosper setting, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, that's another word for him, was a really wicked king. And God says, not through your line will a king come. Now that's a real problem because the kingly line gets passed down through the kingly line. And so the last king of Israel, God cursed, and he said, nope, there will never, ever be a king again through your line. Well, then how do you establish a true and right king? Wouldn't you know that God had a way to, like, circumvent this? (laughs) Like, notice what Matthew says. Now, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph is Jesus's stepdad, for lack of better terms, his adopted father the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Now, if we go to like Luke's account, Luke is the other one that gives an account of Jesus's genealogy and they're very different tracks up. Luke follows Mary's genetics back. And so in these two, we see that by following Joseph's bloodline back, Jesus doesn't carry Joseph's blood in his body. But a super powerful thing, especially for anybody who's been adopted, Jesus was adopted, and in adoption, all legal rights are okay. So Jesus, as an adopted son of Joseph, all of these promises can go back, and he can legally be the next king of Israel, right? That gives me goosebumps. He legally has all claims, yet this curse that God gave back in Jeremiah it's still, it's still fulfilled because he doesn't carry his blood and that curse still continues. But now you take Mary. Mary goes back all the way through and all of these promises are full, fulfilled through Mary. So Jesus carries the blood and the legal descent. Like he's doubly qualified for this rule. And this is super powerful what Matthew is saying. Okay, I could go on for like another hour, but I'm like seeing where I'm at time-wise. Let's kind of check out my notes, see where we are. Okay, so we covered that. 
eh, there's some skeletons in Jesus's closet that I have highlighted, which I love, like, just to point out, we, we have some characters, uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. There's some women in there with some, there's each of these stories, these four stories, like, it's a beautiful picture of God's, like, redemption, his grace towards humanity, that even in, like, Jesus's line, there's some, like, really tough stories. And, and so what do we do, like, this week as we enter into Christmas? Like, I, I've only scratched the surface. So we go from Genesis 3, 3.15 to the Abrahamic covenant to the Davidic covenant to Matthew's account of the gospel. Matthew, this Jew, trying to reach Jewish people who are going to be super critical, trying to disprove that Jesus is not the Messiah, that his birth is not significant, that it's all a scam. And Matthew says, no, 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 we're going to start with the legal records of his, 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 the patriarchs before him to show that he, on both fronts, is totally qualified to be the Messiah. And that all of these promises that God gave, like when, you, when I say the Abrahamic covenant and I say the Davidic covenant, then there's like all of these different layers of, of additional promises that sort of tie into them that go through the Old Testament. Jesus lays out, or Jesus, Matthew lays out that this guy, Jesus, who I'm going to write to you about, that I want you to trust your life and your soul to, he's qualified not only in his genetic record, but in his life of perfection and the things that he's done, that Matthew authenticates with more scripture, tying together all the prophecy. It's like, it's overwhelming to like consider like everything that was fulfilled in Jesus's birth. Like this isn't just some dude that people made great stories about and like I'm wearing a candy cane, like it's like, I'm not wearing a candy cane, I'm wearing a shirt with candy canes on it. Like next year, maybe. Um, like it's so much more powerful than like we come when we come to Christmas and we've like hijacked these like pagan holidays, which is wonderful, but don't let that distract you from the significance of Jesus's birth. Paul, one of the greatest skeptics in human history, like Paul was one of these Jews that did not believe Paul was defending the Jewish faith so adamantly that he was going to these Jewish people that were converting and proclaiming that Jesus was Messiah. He was killing them, arresting them, persecuting them at great length. And then Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and utterly transformed this guy's life. His whole world was rocked. He met him on the road to Damascus. He has to go away for something like 14 years. And he just studies the Old Testament, and he like takes everything he knows about the Bible and the claims about Jesus, and he has to reassimilate everything. And then he comes out of this time of training sort of to be the guy that God uses to give us the New Testament in large part. Like it, 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 and in 1 Timothy, what does Paul have to say about Jesus and his coming? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, this is what the Apostle Paul writes, this guy who killed Christians. Like, he killed Christians. The early church was terrified of Paul. When he became a convert and he was brought in, they're like, uh, this is just a big scam. He's just trying to figure out where we are. And Barnabas is like, no, 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 guys. Like, I'm putting my name on this guy. Like, he is legitimate. This guy 
who killed Christians for proclaiming that Christ was the Messiah, now says this. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. This is what we celebrate as Christians on Christmas, that Jesus came into existence, into the world, to what? To save sinners. Among whom I am the foremost of all. This is what Paul writes, but I kind of, like, I think we all should say, yeah, amen. Like, I, the, the more we know Jesus and his holiness and his righteousness, the more clear the picture about our sinfulness should come. And he says, for I am the foremost of all, yet for this reason, I found mercy. And I found, like, amen, have we all found mercy? Like, I hope you have discovered the mercy of God. That means that he withholds the wrath that you should receive for your sinfulness. So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the one and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here this guy, the greatest persecutor of the church, only to discover that he actually was a sinner and that he was wrong about Jesus. To then stop in his tracks, change course, and give the whole rest of his life serving him, proclaiming him, ultimately going to his death, testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. His prayer is that we would receive this greatest gift. My prayer is that we would come to understand who Jesus is, this great, merciful, patient, and kind God that loves us. Another man who God greatly used, I want to end with a quote that's from him, or at least it's from a movie about him. I don't know if it's actually true, you know. There was a man who wrote probably the most famous hymn of all time. What is that hymn? Amazing Grace. John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader, a horrible, ugly, wicked man. And he describes when he wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote it to the tune of what he says, like, the tune of the spiritual songs of what he called, like the Negroes in the, the compartment of the ship, he could hear them singing their, their tone of the spirituals. And then as he gives his life to Christ, changes everything, he pens this song about grace. And I think it's touched the lives of so many people because this is a man that understood grace. And in the movie, at least, I don't know if he said it in real life, but the movie is good enough for me. That's a, to quote accurately, he says, although my memory, my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And that's why we rejoice over Christmas. It's because he came to fulfill all these prophecies to create this opportunity for us to respond to him by faith so that we might have this relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, as we are all caught up in the Christmas time, this, this season of, of singing and eating sweets and just kind of loving on our, our friends and our family and 
passing gifts and slowing down a little bit and all of the traditions that we enjoy. Father, I pray that you would help us not to get distracted by all of these wonderful things that we enjoy. I pray that you would help us to truly understand who Jesus is, his life, so much did he fulfill in his coming, so much in his life did he accomplish, but ultimately he went to the cross as a criminal, an innocent man, and the wrath of the Father was poured out upon him and he absorbed it all. He didn't deserve it. We deserved it. And we thank you, Lord, that he was our propitiation, which means that he satisfied the wrath that was due us. And as we turn to him in faith and receive this ultimate gift that's once and for all, we can be restored into a relationship with you, that we can receive everlasting life, that we receive your spirit that secures us until the day of redemption, that he leads us and guides us and helps us to be the men and women that you desire us to be. We thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus. We live in this world that is so dark and fearful and just filled with hopelessness that we can turn to him and find hope and peace and ultimate joy. And we thank you for this, this truth. I pray for each person here that you would move us closer and deeper in our relationships with you. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.